good with gadgets. Anybody not good with gadgets in here, electronic gadgets? You just, uh, you know, we're of that culture, some of us, uh, but it's not just some of us who are a little bit on the older side. I talked to a young man in the earlier service up here, and he's much younger than most of us in here, and he said, you know what, I don't like gadgets. I'm not good with electronics. But there's one electronic gadget that I'm glad I possess. It's called a Garmin. The only problem with the Garmin is it's, 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 it's a female voice telling me where I need to go, which is pretty much true to life, isn't it, gentlemen? Anyway, women really run the world anyway. Uh, I should just sit down and that's it, go home, right? That's what I thought. Well, I'm not going to do that, though. But uh, uh, my parents were always getting us lost. I can remember as a child, everywhere we went, we, we always had a hard time getting there. Now, in Brazil, it was a little more difficult. But even in the States, it, 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 was, it was, as a child, it was frustrating. We got in the car and we would go to somewhere. And, and before we would get there, we would always get lost. And not only were we always late, but we were always seemed like lost. Now, my mom listens to the podcast, and so I'm going to get a call, and she's going to, Charlie, that's not true. But it is true. My brother and sister can confirm that. But when you have a Garmin, it's hard to get lost unless you put the destination wrong or the point of departure wrong in the Garmin because it will tell you how to get there. God is giving, through his word, instructions as to how the people of God are to navigate into right relationship with himself and with each other. I spoke to a young lady uh, out, out of the back after the service here in this service uh, last Sunday, and she said, you know, I'm having conflict with someone in my family, but I'm in the right and they're in the wrong. You know, that's possible. Jesus was always in the right, and he had conflict with his disciples and the religious elite all the time, and he was never wrong. James understood that as the brother of Jesus. He lived with someone who was always in the right and never in the wrong. So whether you're in the right or not, you can still have conflict. Jesus did, but guess what? You are not Jesus. I said you're not Jesus. Uh, you are you are not created divinely like he was. You have a carnal nature, a very self-centered aspect about your life that wants what you want, that desires what you want, and you are continually, constantly pursuing those, those out-of-control passions and those, those unachievable pursuits and those unanswered prayers, and you want what you want in your marriage, in your family, in your job place, in the church, and God is writing to James, to a group of believers who are in conflict with each other in the church. And the reason they're in conflict with each other in the church is because they're in conflict with God. Or you see, I'm convinced that you can't be in a right relationship with others in the body of Christ without being right with God. And when you're not right with God, you're going to not be right with others. And so God, through the penmanship of James, is addressing the conflict that they are having in the fellowship, in the body of Christ. These are believers, family members who have the same father, who have the same Jesus. They're in conflict with each other. He's saying, before you can resolve the conflict among each other, you must resolve the conflict you have with God. That's where it all starts. And so he's helping them navigate a, a course. He's helping them chart their course back into a right relationship with God so that once they settle their conflict between them and God, they can then address the conflict they're having with those in the family of God. 
Because if you're in conflict with God, you cannot be right with your brother or your sister in Christ or your husband or your wife or your children or your parents or anyone. Because I'm convinced that at the root of most conflict that we have with each other is our conflict with God. And once we solve that, it's easier then to be right with each other. And so God through James helps us sort of navigate ourselves back into a right relationship with God. And he starts, first of all, with a beginning point. I know about you been in the Garmin, it always says, where are you? What is your current location? And in order for you to chart the course that, that wants to take you to where you want to go, you have got to know where you are. And so he, he's giving them a reference point. He's giving them their current situation, their current location. He says, where do you begin? And in James 4, beginning with verse 6, we, I know we read it last week, but we're going to recap it, just one verse from last week. He said, but he, God, gives more grace. Aren't you glad that God gives us more grace? Grace upon grace, Romans 5.20. For where sin abounds, so does grace. And he's reminding them, you're now being covered under the grace of God, even though you're in conflict with me, in conflict with one another. But then he says, therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee. Notice in the text, where does it begin? It begins by first, he's saying to them, you must reject then God's opposing circumstance or characteristic in your life that is causing the conflict. You must oppose what God opposes. You must be against what God is against. And what God says in this verse he's against is sin, but sin primarily causes as a result of pride in the hearts of the people that he's addressing. There are people in the church, in the fellowship, in the family of God that he is addressing here who are filled with pride. What is pride? It is a self righteousness, self-sufficiency attitude that is so arrogant that they are not willing to examine their own hearts to determine whether or not they're in a right relationship with God or not. They are so proud of themselves that they believe that they have attained the level of perfection. They are successful in living out the Christian life. And so therefore, I am not the root of the problem. I am above and beyond sin. And when everybody else gets up and rises up to my level, then everything will be great. These are self-sufficient people who are not recognizing their dependency upon God and seeing their own sinfulness. They're acting completely self-righteous. And God is saying to them, because of your pride, we are in opposite corners of the ring. Now, how would you like to get into a ring, put on your boxing gloves, sit in your corner, wait for the bell to ring, and suddenly realize that on the opposite corner is God? You're not going to win. And what he's saying to here is that not only are we in opposite corners, but we are working, you are working against me and we are working against each other. And the grace that I am presently covering you right now is, is, is you're in trouble. Were it not for grace, you would be judged. You would be disciplined by me. But you're being covered over grace for temporary. And I want you to immediately, instantly consider what I'm saying and the fact that your pride is putting you in opposition to me. And you must humble yourself and recognize your need and your sufficiency for me and your sin. So we must, like they, reject what opposes God, and that is pride. Then secondly, we notice that we are to restore those things that belong to God. He uses the word submit. The word submit is an interesting word. It is a voluntary act where we submit to God. God doesn't want to really make us submit. 
While there are times he brings circumstances and things into our lives that bring us to our knees and cause us to finally turn things over to God, he doesn't force us to submit beyond our will. He wants us to voluntarily submit ourselves to God. And when we came to faith in Jesus and we placed our faith and trust in him and we recognized our sin and that he was the solution to our sin, we willfully then turned our lives over to him and we embraced him as our Savior and we surrendered our all to him. All of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, and all of our strength. Anything less than that, according to Jesus, Jesus and the scriptures is not salvation. You cannot come to faith in Jesus and receive his all unless you give your all. Our all is a requirement. It is a necessity in order for us to be saved. All of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, all of our strength, our all. And he is an exclusive God and he demands that we give him our all. And anything less than that is robbery. It is stealing what belongs to God after conversion. And he's saying to these people, you have, when you were converted, you gave me your all. And now you are taking back what belongs to me. And you must now willingly, voluntarily, immediately give back to me what belongs to me. Because of your passions and your pursuits and your unanswered prayers, you are robbing me and taking back from me what you originally gave to me and it doesn't belong to you anymore and you're using what belongs to me to gratify your own passions and your own pursuits and your own pleasures and you must give it back to me. That's what he's saying, to restore those things now that belong to the Father that we gave to him upon conversion. And then once we've restored those things that belong to him, we must then then resist then the temptations of the enemy called the devil. I mean, he says here, not only should you submit to God, but he says resist the devil. To resist, that means that we are to to put, put effort behind this whole aspect of resistance. This word is a military metaphor that says to us that we must be defiant, we must be decisive, and we must be deliberate in resisting the devil. For the devil is is a persistent cuss, isn't he? Don't you wish he would take a vacation or go away for just a moment, but he doesn't? And because of our sinful nature and our, our, our Adamic selves that within us that want what we want, and because we live in a fallen world and our carnality is sort of mixed together, we feel like as if we are swimming against the tide. We are, we are in a tug-of-war between the world and Satan and the Spirit of Christ. And there's that tug-of-war going on. And he's saying we must continually be defiant and, and resist through submission the temptations, the woos, and the, the things that Satan puts out there to dangle in front of us to woo us unto himself. Even though we're saved... We can still sin. We can still be enticed. And so he's saying that's where you begin. You begin by first rejecting what God opposes. You then restore what belongs to God. And once you've restored what belongs to God, you then must resist the temptations of the enemy. And once you begin to do that, there's some basics then that you need begin to plot your course. In other words, once you identify where you are spiritually, I'm committing spiritual adultery, I'm a child of the God, I'm king, I'm not acting like that, I should restore back to him what, what is rightfully his. I must resist the enemy because I've been giving him way too much ground, way too much attention in my life. And now I'm going to reject the pride that is in my heart, that is self-righteous and self-sufficiency, and understand in humility I must depend upon him and turn to him. Once I do that, notice he says in verse 8, I must draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. 
I said in the 10 o'clock service, that's kind of a downer verse to me. It's not very uplifting. It says that I'm to, to, to be wretched, to mourn, and to weep, and to turn my laughter into mourning and my joy to gloom. Why? Well, here's the basics. I'm committing spiritual adultery. I've committed my all to to the King of kings and the Lord of lords when I accepted Jesus in my life and I'm stealing from him by using what belongs to him on my own passions and my own pursuits and my own pleasures. And so I must restore that back to him, give it back to him. And notice that he says that, that it's a voluntary act on my part. I've said that already. The whole context here is a voluntary act on our part that we voluntarily do this. He can break us into submission, but he would rather us volunteer that which he is demanding and he deserves. And when we voluntarily placed our faith and trust in Christ, we received a high priest, and his name is Jesus. Now, remember, he's writing to to, uh, religious uh, Jews, more than likely, who understood the full ramification of having access into the presence of God, where once a year the high priest was the only one who had access to God. But now, through faith in Jesus, by turning our whole hearts and lives over to him and, and embracing the full redemptive work of his cross on Calvary where he took upon himself our sin and died in our place and he rose from the dead giving us victory over sin. Now through faith in him he brings us by the hand and he takes us directly into the presence of the Father. And now as we stand before the, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, God himself, Jehovah, we see a reflection of him in all of his glory and all of his beauty, but also all of his holiness. And when we, when we see his holiness, it reflects upon our unholiness. It helps us see the areas in our lives that don't measure up to the standard that he set, which is holiness, which is perfection. And, and because of that, and because it's intended to do that, the idea is then that we are to humble ourselves and lean upon his mercy and his grace, and we must then recognize the sin that is in our hearts and our lives. We take it seriously. Our hearts are sensitive to what is sensitive to his heart. And because every sin, no matter how minute or how small and insignificant we may think it is, because he died on the cross for that sin, there are no insignificant sins. There are none. Anybody in here want to contest that sin? But say, well, I, I know of a sin that doesn't seem to really matter to God. Christ died for all sins, the ones that we have deemed insignificant. He sees all sin as significant, and he is sensitive to every minute sin in our lives, and he wants us to take it serious. And the world that we live in doesn't take sin seriously. It laughs at sin. It enjoys sin. It entices us to do the same. And the sad reality is there are many believers today who are living lives like the world. And these people were not serious and sensitive about the sin that was existing in their heart and causing them to have conflict with God. Imagine that. Well, should we be less pious and look into the reflection of God and say, you know what, God? There have been times in my life, and maybe it's today, that I've not been as sensitive to the sins that exist in my heart because did he not say that it's not the hands the reason our hands are committing sin is because our hearts are sinful that's what he's saying here so he's saying cleanse your hands why because you need to purify your hearts our lives reflect the sin that's in our hearts and he's saying I want you to not settle for superficial cleansing but let the cleansing that the spirit of God wants to do through the blood of Jesus let it cleanse your hearts and that will then reflect in an outward holiness but self-righteousness does what it cleans up the outside and ignores the inside 
He's saying, no, start with the inside, and it will reflect on the outside. So how do I do that? What are, what are the basics here? There's a strategy here. There's a strategic effort on our parts as believers to not only be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and to be sensitive about every sin, but to take that sensitivity seriously and to recognize and realize that our pet sins are really not pet sins. They're what God sees them as they are vile and they are evil and they are a reproach to him. And no matter how long we've held on to it or how many excuses we've given for it, it is still sin and sin is sin. And God is sensitive to the sins that exist in our lives, whether it's gossip or thoughts or what we see or what we hear. It may be in the privacy of our own little bubble in our world that we think that no one sees, but he does and he knows. And he's saying we must take it seriously and not laugh at the sin in our heart because that sin drove Jesus to the cross where he died on a cruel death on that cross at Calvary so that through faith in him and his mercy and his grace, we can be redeemed and brought back into right relationship with him. And these people were not taking their sin seriously. They were letting sin coexist in their lives and continued to enjoy the conflict they had with God, overlooking that, thinking, I don't need to do, I don't need to humble myself. I'm okay. It's everybody else that's wrong. Really. And he's saying, humble yourself. And when you do, you'll find grace and restoration. Because pride keeps us at enmity with God. Well, that's really the basics as we began this journey of reconciling the conflict we have with God. And, and what would motivate me to want to do that? What are the benefits? What are the blessings? I like this part. What are the benefits or the blessing of us reconciling the conflict that we have with God? Notice that he says in the text that grace will abound. Grace will abound. He talks here about this extended unmerited favor from God. God will extend to us this, this amazing grace that we, we, we came to faith in Christ and experienced grace upon grace. Romans 5.20 said, where sin abounds, so does grace. And there's no sin that is greater than the grace of God. There is no sin that is greater than the grace of God. These people were existing with known sin in their lives, and he was saying to them, you need to deal with it pretty quickly. You're under and being covered by my grace. Don't cheapen my grace. Don't cheapen it. Don't make it something that it's not supposed to be because when we live with existing sin in our lives, we cheapen the grace of God. And how dare us as believers cheapen the very grace that was extended to us by the death of Christ on the cross. We must be sensitive to sin and take it serious because he did so much so that he sent his one and only son to take upon himself the sins that we committed. All of them died in our place, a horrific death, so that we could be set free. So we must... Understand that once we come and we admit that we have sinned and we ask for forgiveness and we abandon that sin and turn to, to faith in Jesus, even as believers, and say, Lord, I have sinned, forgive me. First John 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So he extends to us unmerited favor. Secondly, notice that Satan will flee from you. That simply says not only does he extend this unmerited favor, but notice in the text he empowers us to resist the temptations and the wiles of the devil. Because once we submit 
and resist, we can then live in victory and freedom. You want to be free from the enemy? You want to be free from the allurements of sin and the enticements of the world and to live a godly, holy life? Submit your all to God. Resist the devil and the promises here. He will flee. He will empower you to resist and to live the life that God has called you to live. But not only does he extend unmerited favor and empower us with grace, he eliminates the reproach. Or once we confess, he removes the distance and he brings us into a right relationship to him. Why? Because we've met the condition. And then finally, notice he elevates us with beautiful hope. I love verse 10. It says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. He will elevate you. He will encourage you. He will strengthen you. There's nothing worse than a believer who's lost hope. There's nothing worse than a believer who's living in known sin. And they have tried and they have tried and they have tried and they've tried to gain victory over that sin. They're sensitive to it. They're serious about it. But they just can't seem to get the victory. And I'm convinced that when we meet the standard of God by faith, he will, he will encourage us, he will exalt us, he will pick us up, and he will elevate us in himself to know the victory and the joy of overcoming. It's a beautiful benefits. So as our deacons come and stand, I want you to think about something for a minute. While our guys come and just stand up here, orchestra and choir, come on up. Something I want us to think about for just a moment. Let's prepare for the communion today. If you're on the fringes, please do me a favor and move in because it's going to help our deacons do that. If you're out there on the fringes, please move toward the side if you would because it's going to help our guys do a better job at this. Here's some things I want us to consider. I want you to consider your distance from God. Are you serious about sin? Are you as sensitive to the sin in your heart and life as you need to be? Sin is sin. We need to be sensitive to it. Gossip is wrong. Hate is the same as murder. Unforgiveness is unacceptable. There are all kinds of things that we somehow, we sort of elevate ourselves and our self-sufficiency and our self-righteousness, and we say, they're the ones that need to repent because I am, I'm the believer here. I'm the, I'm the Christ follower. I, you know, Really? This was written to believers in James, not to unbelievers. And sometimes there's sin in our own hearts and, and there's sin in the family and the fellowship of Christ because we fail to be serious and to take with incredible sensitivity every, every sin in our lives because there are no small sins. So consider what's keeping you and God from enjoying that beautiful, intimate love relationship with him and, and there's conflict, then, then today make a decision to convene for a peace conference. You know what I, I, I'm going to have today? I, I want to make peace with God today. I want to reconcile this conflict between me and God because you know what? I'm not going to be able to, to solve the conflict with the people in my life until I deal with my own sins. Unforgiveness, anger, bitterness, jealousy, pride. What is it? And come before God and convene a peace conference with him by confessing and repenting of all sin, all sin that he brings to your mind today. All of it.
Is there anything in your heart at all today, anything at all, that's creating you and God to be an opposite? And it's robbing you of this beautiful grace that's been bestowed upon you through faith in Jesus and his sacrificial atoning death on the cross and preventing you from living in freedom so that today we can gather together as a family as we've been told by Jesus to do when he first held this beautiful celebration with his disciples in the upper room and they shared the communion together and he said, do this in remembrance of me. We're in his presence this morning. We are his disciples, and we are here to celebrate the amazing grace found through faith in Jesus. How can we do so with known sin in our hearts, reflective through our lives? Let me ask you across this room just to bow where you are. Take just a moment. Our deacons are going to pass out the communion, the elements of the Lord's Supper. I'm going to encourage you to look up as it comes your way. And then once you receive it, just examine for a moment the the little bread that's there. It's the body of Christ, the juice that you're going to hold in your hand, which is symbolic of the blood of Christ. And think about his sacrifice, his atoning death on the cross. For he who knew no sin became sin for us. That's how sensitive the heart of God is and how serious he took your sin. So as we sing this song together and as the elements are coming, let's be reminded today of who Jesus is and what our faith means to us.
Many of us here this morning in many different places and walks of life, and maybe you're here today and you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus and turned over to him your life and your love. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting life. I know that all of us and you are loved by God the Father. Loved so much that he sent his one and only son to die on a cross for you. If you will turn from your sin, repent of sin, he can transform your life and give you new life so that you can enter into a love relationship with him and walk with him and enjoy the blessings and the benefits of an amazing love and life that he has planned for you. All you need to do is trust him. It's simple. Dear Jesus, I believe that you are the son of God. I believe you died on the cross for my sin against God. By faith, I now turn from my life of sin and turn to you and trust you as my savior and commit to you the leadership of my life. If there's anyone in this place this morning, would you join me and the deacons while we're standing who would like to make that kind of pledge, that kind of commitment, that kind of surrender to him today? Anyone in this place, just stand with us. Let us celebrate your decision today. There's another group of us in here today, the rebellious, who like the prodigal sons, had a relationship with the father. And one of us in this room, or many of us, may have been guilty of what the rebellious son did. He took and squandered his inheritance on a kind of lifestyle that was not beneficial, nor was it reflective of his love and his relationship with his father. And while he was waddling in his own self-pity, he realized what he had done. He repented of his sin and came back to his father. And today, maybe you, as a rebel, would say, you know, I, I need to come back to God. Maybe you've not gone as far as the rebellious son, but you've not been quite the son or the daughter that you need to be. And today, you want to stand and say, I want to return. I want to come back. I want to repent. I want to enjoy a love relationship with him before we celebrate what he did for us. Would you stand? Anyone here today would honestly say, I'm a rebel and I want to come back to God. Anyone in here today want to stand with me and say, you know, sometimes I'm like the older son who stays out in the field and who covers my own sinfulness and not recognizing that because I'm filled with pride, I need to humble myself before my heavenly father and to recognize the sin of my own life and repent. For I have not taken sin as seriously as I should and I've not been as sensitive to sin as I should. Today, before I take this communion, I want to stand with the pastor who also is like me and saying, I want to be sensitive I want to take sin seriously. And God, I want you to cleanse not just my heart, but my life today. Anyone want to join me in that declaration of your faith? He was in the upper room, and he broke the bread. And he said, this is symbolic of my body, the body of Christ that absorbed the full wrath of God because of our sin and rebellion toward God. And it's our joy today to honor him 
and to celebrate what he did for us by sharing together as his family, his sons and daughters, this bread together. Let's do it in remembrance of him. And after he broke the bread, he took the wine and he poured it in a cup. And he said, this is symbolic of my blood. For without the blood and the work of the Spirit through the blood, there can be no cleansing of sin. He gave his life so that we could live. And he said to his family and his disciples who were gathered together, as he says to us this morning, he said, every time you do this, do it in remembrance of my blood. And so today, as his family, we do this in remembrance of his blood. Thank you, Father, for the joy that's ours to celebrate the mercy and the grace that we have received as your sons and daughters. It's great to know that you're our Father and that nothing we do or fail to do can ever change that relationship. It's forever sealed and settled by the Spirit that lives within us. Thank you for that guarantee. Thank you for that hope. And we honestly come before you this morning and recognize that with, without your, were it not for your mercy and grace, we would be hopeless. But because of your mercy and grace, we have hope today that transcends our humanity, our weakness, and our sin. That if we confess, you who are faithful will forgive and cleanse and restore and renew our hearts and our spirits with your heart and with your spirit. So Lord, cleanse us today, not superficially, but all the way in the depths of our hearts of any known sin. And I pray that as we leave this place this morning, we would be sensitive, so sensitive to every sin in our lives. No matter how small and insignificant we may think it is, we know that it's not. Because you and we are serious about sin in our lives, I pray that you would equip us with that sensitivity and that seriousness, that you would empower us to understand the wonder of your grace and to run to you, not from you, so that in a right relationship with you, we can live out every single day of our lives. We love you, Lord. We thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. Thank you for your presence, Spirit, in this place. Convict us, cleanse us, and keep us committed to a life of holiness, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the message we've heard today. Lord, we owe it all to you. Jesus paid it all. And thank you for the opportunity of giving it back to you, what you blessed us with today. Lord, we just pray your blessings upon this offering to the furtherance of your kingdom. And more than that, take us as your own. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.
sometimes that offering happens to be our children, doesn't it? Um, Ryan and Nikki want to come up with um, little Katie, and they're going to come up here, and we're going to present them. And the reason we're doing that, we're going to commission her. Uh, she is on her way to the beautiful country of Panama. And um, I had some things I'm supposed to read here, but uh, I'm going to take a little bit of freedom. we got three minutes before it's 12 o'clock, so all you who do not have faith couldn't believe that we would do this by this kind of time. So turned to your neighbor and said, we did it. But um, Katie, we haven't, we haven't finished yet, have we? Um, Katie is adopted, and she's from Russia, and God gave her to this beautiful couple, and their responsibility is to raise her in a godly home. And I know these two people, and they love God, and they love Jesus, and they love this church, and they are committed to him, and they are raising their beautiful daughter to do the same, and she does, and she's being called to missions. We were in a meeting yesterday, and we said, you know, the way you really judge whether God's really using your church or not is by who your church sends out. That's how you judge whether God's really moving in your church, who you send out. And we are sending teams to uh, northwestern Kansas this summer and to Canada this summer and a couple other places. But Katie wants to come, and she wants us to pray over her, and so does her mom and dad. Because it's not going to be easy for Nikki. But it's going to be hard for Dad too, right, Ryan? Uh, Katie will be going to Panama for a little over four weeks. Um, the main focus of her trip is evangelism. This is accomplished through a drama and personal interactions with people. The team will spend time in the city sharing the gospel on street corners, in plazas, in crumbling slums, and old-style marketplaces. They will also be traveling by dugout boat into a jungle to minister to an ancient tribe. So if you'd like to join these parents and Katie and I know the family that's not all here today, and say, I'd like to pray for her from June the 9th to July the 12th. If you'll pray for her, would you join us in standing? I'm going to encourage you, if you like to, and you've got the energy and the wind power, to come down here, hug her neck, tell you love her, and let's pray for her as we close. Father, thank you for the joy that's ours to celebrate with this precious daughter of yours named Katie, for her heart for missions and for lost people. I pray that all of us in this room would have that passion. Thank you for leading us with the children in our church to exhibit this kind of love for our lost world. God, we pray that you would protect her, watch over her, keep her close to you at all times. God, we pray you'd protect her from any harm that might come her way. We pray that you would just envelop her with your love, provide a hedge of protection around her, and keep her in the center of your will. Use her, God, as a light piercing the darkness in the world that you're sending her into. Panama, like where we live, is a very dark place, and it's our prayer and our desire that you would anoint her with her spirit, with your spirit, that you would give her the words she needs to share bravely with the people that you're going to bring into her life. Begin right now to prepare those people in advance 
for the gospel that you're gonna, they're going to see lived out through her and shared by your voice through her. God, use her in a mighty way. We're going to trust you with her and know that in your hands, she's exactly where she needs to be. Because you love her even more than Ryan and, and Nikki and, and the rest of her family here, we know that you're going to be with her. So we trust you, we thank you, and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this broadcast of Emmanuel Baptist Church. Emmanuel is located at 1415 South Topeka in Wichita, Kansas, and is easily accessible from all parts of the city and surrounding areas. Every Sunday morning, Emmanuel offers two worship services. The first service begins at 9.30 a.m. and offers a contemporary worship setting in a casual and relaxed atmosphere. Our second worship service begins at 10.50 a.m. in our worship center and is led by the Emmanuel Choir and Orchestra. Both services are centered around strong biblical teaching where the Bible is presented in a clear and relevant way. Life groups for children and adults of all ages are provided at 9.30 a.m. and 10.50 a.m. For more information, please visit our website at www.ibcwichita.com. That's www.ibcwichita.com.